angry feelings are disagreeable. I'm putting you on warning. Just who the hell do you think you people are? They will be met with fire and fury. They make you act and look as well as feel unhappy. Our very way of life. Look at the fear. Are under threats from extremists. I am your voice. Welcome to Anger Management with Nick Clegg, the podcast that asks why is everybody, not quite everybody, why are so many people angry and what can we do about it? Because the theme of this is the view that uh, anger is not generally in in large quantities a good thing. We need more reason, more balance, uh, more nuance in life. And no one could um, be better placed to speak about this than my guest this week. Alif Shafak, who is, um, I don't know quite how to describe you, campaigner, author uh, on not just a European but a global uh, scale uh, and someone who's spoken so eloquently and written so eloquently uh, over many years now about um, the politics of emotion. Um, Are you an angry person? No, I'm not an angry person. I don't think so. But there are things that make me angry, of course. Um, but in, in many ways, I think this is the age of emotions, or it's an age in which emotions guide and misguide politics. And we see this happening east and west everywhere. So I think it is. it would be right to call it the age of anger, but also anxiety, resentment. There's a lot of bitterness. So one of the challenges, I believe, that we will have to face, not in the next years, but probably the next decades, is how to communicate with um, emotions, and maybe we need to increase our emotional intelligence. To be honest, it it makes me very sad to see how populist demagogues are much better than many liberals and people on the left um, in terms of communicating with with people's emotions. Mm. And I think we need to change our narrative And we need to find a new narrative that takes emotions seriously. It's a, it's a subject that, that's quite underestimated, both in media and academia. We're so obsessed with quantitative data that we tend to, you know, belittle emotions. Mm-hmm. But it's tremendously important. Certainly, we need to talk about statistics, about economic inequality. It's very important. But in, if we do not pay attention to perceptions, to emotions, things mm-hmm. that are perhaps much more abstract, but equally important, then I don't think we can understand no, the shifts in the political landscape today. No, the heart is a much stronger organ than the brain, I think. For sure. Uh, I think yes. our brains spend much of, our, much of it, th- their time sort yeah. of telling us to rationalise what our heart has already decided. Yeah. But just I, I, I read somewhere that you said that you obviously write in Turkish and English, and yeah. perhaps other languages, I, I don't know, but um, yeah. and that you found Turkish... I may be misdescribing this, a more emotive language and English a more cerebral language. Is that... So do you sort of choose which language to write in depending on whether the head or the heart is predominant? Well, I think it's such an important subject for me. I don't see language as an instrument. I don't see it as something I use and then put aside. Just the opposite. I think I see it as a continent, as a space I enter into. And in that regard, I think languages shape us. They Mm. each have their own labyrinth and melody. And I see myself maybe as a commuter between cultures, cities, um, languages as well. A linguistic nomad, yeah. A linguistic nomad, maybe intellectual nomad, maybe spiritual nomad. I wholeheartedly believe it's possible to be a world citizen and it's possible to be a global soul. So these are things I care about a lot. But when I look at my own journey, um, I did not grow up bilingual, so I can see the difference. There's a big difference between the way my children are growing up 
for them, English is almost their, their first language because they've been in this country for so long. So you speak Turkish at home with them? Uh, we or? speak both, actually, okay, both okay. Turkish yeah. and English. Whereas for me, I was a late comer. I started learning English at the age of 10. Mm. And back then I was in Madrid in Spain. So Spanish was my second language and English became my third. But the thing is, it never abandoned me. It always accompanied me. And over time, I realized as a writer, it's it's quite a bit of a challenge, to be honest, to write in a, in a yeah. second or third language. But because it there's gave always me, a gap, isn't there? There's always a gap between the mind and the tongue. And I mm. think as foreigners, as latecomers, we're always aware of that gap because our mind runs faster mm. and our tongue is always trying to catch up. So as latecomers, you're always a bit frustrated with yourself because you want to say more and you end up saying less. <laughs> But I think what I noticed as an author, and I started, I switched from writing in Turkish first to writing in English first about 14 years ago. Um, and ever since then, every novel that I have written has been translated into Turkish by a professional translator. Then the translator gave me the manuscript and I rewrote it. So now, in a way, I've been writing the same book twice. Um, but writing in English, I think, gave me a separate zone of mm-hmm. maybe existence, you know, mm. a, a sense of freedom, a cognitive distance yeah, that I yeah. needed. And when you take a step back from your homeland, maybe you can see things a bit more clearly. Mm. So I feel attached to Ichi language in a different way. Mm. Turkish for me is very emotional because it's the language of my childhood, my grandmother. Um, English, in that re- sense, it's more cerebral. But I realize if there is irony, satire, um, sarcasm, humor mm. in my writing, and these are very important to me, I'd rather write that in English, whereas melancholy, longing, loss and sorrow, I think is much easier to express in Turkish. Mm. And and two things, well, there are many other things, no doubt, but two things strike me when I sort of learned about your upbringing. Firstly, mm. you were raised by two strong yeah. women, though. Yeah very different in many respects, your mother and your grandmother. But also, you went. You were born in Strasbourg, yeah. then you went to Turkey, then you went to Madrid and so on. So do you think you would have been a writer first and would you have been the kind of writer that you are if you'd not had those rather exceptional experiences? I think the sense of solitude, loneliness, I should say, that I had since my childhood, because I was an only child by, raised by a single mother, And so I felt lonely for long stretches of time. That helped me to find the world of books earlier than my peers, perhaps. You know, I... Because you started writing very... I started writing at a very early age, but that's not because I wanted to become a novelist. I didn't even know such a thing was possible. I was just bored. You know, life was very boring. (laughs) And so there's another world there, a storyland, which was much more colorful and real to me. I think that left a big impact. But also the very fact that I grew up in a dysfunctional family, I grew up without seeing my father and I was raised between, you know, my mother, but also my grandmother, whom I called mother Anne in Turkish for a long time. These are things that left a big impact on me as well. My grandmother was a oral storyteller. She was a healer of, a, you know, 
uh, of a certain kind, and and I think of what kind? Uh, like, well, the, I I remember it was a very magical world. Uh, I know when I say such things, it sounds very irrational, but inside the house, it was a world of magic, superstition, spirituality, and this was late 1970s right. in Turkey, where political violence was escalating. So outside the house, bombs were exploding, people were getting killed and shot on the streets, and I remember as a child sitting by the window and just thinking about the contrast between inside the inside and outside yeah. inside and outside mm. and maybe in my in my writing there's always a desire to to weave what is much more political and maybe much more um spiritual mm. if i may say and um you moved to london so many many years later but mm. um i'm just interested why did you choose given that you had this extraordinary upbringing and and you went from one place to the other and Ended up in Arizona for a while, and yeah. so so you had this sort of nomadic existence. Why settle? Why settle as a nomad in London? Yes, I think of course motherhood changes us. Yes. You know, you have to learn to settle down, but at the same time, I and I am aware that these are not very um, favorable words anymore, unfortunately, for so many people. But I am a big believer in cosmopolitanism. I am a big believer in diversity and I come from a country that has lost its cosmopolitan heritage and I believe by losing that culture of multiplicity we in Turkey have lost a lot and I'm not solely talking about financial loss or political loss mm. something in our consciousness was also gone so there's a part of me that always cherishes diversity and I think it's quite visible in my novels London for me is primarily about diversity And I think that's a treasure. Mm. I know it doesn't make things easier, but at the same time, it's worth it. You know, it's worth keeping this alive. It's a, it's a very delicate ecosystem for which I think we all need to mm. work hard. So I don't think we can take diversity for granted. And in in you know in all honesty, it can I believe be lost, yeah? it can be lost so easily because countries can go backwards. We always tend to think that history goes forward that we that it's a linear progressive line mm. you know but not necessarily coming from turkey we have seen that actually it's, it's just the opposite sometimes mm. time goes backwards sometimes generations make exactly the same mistakes that their grandparents had made so it can't be taken for granted but i honestly think in this life if we're ever going to learn anything we will learn it from people who are different than mm. us Someone who speaks like me, votes like me, who is exactly like me, is only an echo of my voice, or I am an echo of their voice, and we don't learn from echoes. Mm. And, and t talking about echoes, uh, there's a lot of concern expressed about social media creating echo chambers in which we don't mm. escape the kind of virtual community which we feel comfortable with. But also, uh, I was very, I was thinking about social media when you talked earlier about the importance of boredom in yeah. propelling you towards a creative writing uh, life as a writer. Do you think social media makes it harder for an, an Elif today, uh, aged eight or nine? I mean, would they be less inclined to pick up a pen and start writing? Because they, they'll have this kind of social media stimulus, these echo chambers, yeah. musical, fashion, yeah. social, uh, uh, you know, on tap. Is that, is that, I mean, do you think the sort of creative impulse is somehow affected by social media? Yeah, it's it's such a big subject, especially among the literary circles, if I may put it that way, because I, I have many um, writer friends, particularly coming from America, who are very much against social media. But coming from Turkey, I also know what social media means to people. And you use it. Absolutely. And I use it. I mm. use both uh, Twitter and Instagram. 
uh, in particularly in those countries where there is no freedom of speech mm. twitter is much more a much more political platform actually so there are different sides to this question the way i see it i i i like to think of social media as the moon i think it does have a bright side and we can't belittle that bright side in the sense that it is much more egalitarian it does connect people and it holds this important potential that can't be underestimated also for women mm. when you look at the middle east mm. unfortunately travel the middle east streets belong to men public squares belong to men especially after certain hours you know after after evening hours but i think there are many young women who see social media as an alternative public space in which they can voice their ex- opinions mm. so i don't take it lightly and i can see what it means for minorities for women for people who don't have much voice in the public space but that's the bright side the dark side of course we should be very much aware of that and i think this dark side was not taken into account for such a long time because there was such optimism that technology was going to turn us into one big global village it's not like that at all it's also a place as as you know where there's unfortunately too much hate speech slander misinformation manipulation of all kinds and i think especially if you are critical and you happen to be a woman the language of sexism is is also quite disturbing and we need to talk about these mm. things openly mm. so rather than seeing technology or social media as black and white i'd rather be aware of different aspects of it but it does concern me that we are very much divided into ghettos mm. you know cultural mental ghettos but wasn't that always the case <clears throat> i I, I just asked that really i mean weren't we always you know here in britain this class riddled yeah. society people define themselves by the cars they drive the accents they have where they send their children to school the, you know the the clothes they wear i mean don't we always as sort of social animals mm. sort sort of folk out who we feel mm. comfortable with is mm. is, or is it really new i think as human beings we have both tendencies a more tribal if you will you know tendency to to be among people who are closer to us think like us but we also have the opposite inclination which is curiosity empathy maybe a more transcendental experience that pushes us to see what's life like beyond you know the, the the life that i have taken for granted we have both but the problem is the world we're living i think very much cultivates the mm. first tendency and constantly pushes down the second tendency we're very much pushed into tribes and it's happening everywhere so are we, are yeah. we pushed or do we choose them i, I mean i don't <coughs> i ask the question genuinely because mm. i don't have the mm. answer because i know that folk like you and dare i say i share your view that i think diversity is incredibly enriching and stimulating and so on but but um for others it, it it can be unsettling and 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 people you know seek out that which they fami- feel familiar with is that not quite a powerful almost sort of primitive human instinct as well i think we can, we we should be um okay with talk you know talking Both. about of those if if we call it primitive human instinct without any any judgment we all have we all share yeah. those feelings and it's quite normal um it's quite normal that one feels more attached to the land where he or she comes from to the land of their gra- great grandfathers or grandmothers these are very beautiful feelings but here's 
the problem, in my opinion. We need to make a distinction between patriotism and nationalism, mm. completely different things. And I think mm. patriotism has been hijacked by nationalists mm. for too long. Just like I make a distinction between faith and religiosity, you know, there can be secular acts of faith. So there are all these areas that unfortunately the left has for too long abandoned um, and now maybe we need to think more carefully. It's quite understandable, and I think we need to understand this, that to see that people are feeling worried about the future of their children. Yes, that they are feeling worried about um, diversity and its negative, you know, if there can be any negative implications, their culture, their future. But let's talk about these things. If we can't talk, then we will be pushing people more and more into the lap of the far right. And this is happening in many parts of Europe, and it concerns me. But what I'm saying is, what populist demagogues are telling us all around the world is that we will be safer Mm. if we're surrounded by sameness. Mm. That is a lie. That is an illusion. Whether we like it or not, Mm. we're far too interconnected today. Mm. So it's better to work on, you know, issues that matter to all of us as Mm. humanity, rather than thinking that if I go back into my tribe, I'm going to be safer. Mm. No, well, I need to say I I agree with you, but uh, (laughs) later on we'll return to Mm. some of these Mm. themes. Just finally, anger and you. So you say you're not an angry person, and what little I've seen, you don't strike me as an angry person, but and yet you you speak so powerfully and write so powerfully against patriarchy wherever you have found it in your own life Mm. and in, in the world at large. Is it is it possible to wage a, a kind of a campaign against patriarchy in all its forms without anger? I think it is possible. And um, I, I've often said, I believe that if you happen to be a novelist, a storyteller from wounded democracies or non-democracies like Turkey, Egypt, Philippines, Russia, you know, there's a long list, so many of us, you do not have the luxury of being non-political. Mm. You can't say, you know, I'm just going to write my books, I'm going to shut the door, you know, close the window, because there's an urgency. Also, I come from a feminist background, I am a feminist, and one of the many wonderful things that women's movements of past generations taught us was politics is not only about political parties, elections, etc. It's also the personal is Mm. also political. So wherever there's power, wherever there's inequality, hierarchy, there is politics. If we define politics in such a broader way, Mm. it is impossible to be non-political. And it interests me to see more and more Western authors also beginning to feel that kind of urgency. But here's where I make a distinction. I think a writer's job is not to try to find the answers. Mm. And I don't like it, actually, when writers preach or try to teach. I find it very off-putting. But a writer's job, in my opinion, is to ask questions, difficult questions about difficult issues, particularly taboos, silences. So I'm not only interested in Mm. stories, but I'm also interested in silences. And to say, why don't we talk about this? Mm. Can we talk about this? You know, to to try to open up that space. And for that, I think we need a critical mind, but we also need compassion. Mm. So is it possible to be political without being a partisan? Yes. Is it possible to question things without being angry? I think yes. Mm-hmm. When you wrote, you wrote um, a widely acclaimed book, uh, Black Milk, about your, yeah. um, your experience of postnatal, postpartum yeah. depression. Was that... Um, were you, did you feel you were breaking taboo and and more generally having children changes us all certainly of course you know change me did, did having children change your 
in that broad sense that you've just described, political views of life? I think parenthood changes us, but it doesn't happen right away, right? It's a journey and we, we learn. We tend to think that we become a parent the day our children are born, but mm. I don't think that's the case. You know, it's a learning process. It's an ongoing journey. And every day we are, we keep learning. Um, so in that regard, there is there's a um, continuity of learning in, in my life. But I think it was very difficult, especially in a country like Turkey, to talk about postpartum depression. Because we have this very sacred, romantic, almost sacred perception of motherhood. And you can't question that. Also, um, maybe personally, when we go through depression, we tend to think that it's only happening to us. Mm. And we tend to think that it's going to be the case forever. We don't see it as a season. If we can understand that I'm not the only one and people go through lots of emotional ups and downs, both men and women, at different stages of their lives, then it becomes lighter. If we can make fun of our, you know, little follies, then it becomes lighter. And most importantly, if we can understand that this is only a season in our lives and it's not necessarily mm. forever, then it becomes lighter. So for me, at the beginning, it was very heavy postpartum depression mm. because I've been writing since I was eight years old. And, and you stopped, didn't you? And for, for the, the first time, time I stopped. Mm. Um, but afterwards, as I kept writing the book, I think it it really helped me a lot. Uh, and I realized there were different... Well, there's quite a lot of humor in it as well. There is humor in it. So it's not a dark book at all. Mm. And maybe I realized I, I, all my life I defended democracy. And for me, it's, it was such a central concept. But I never thought there could be an inner democracy. You know, and I realized... Because that's what do you mean by that, an inner democracy? I think that's the thing. When you go through a depression... You have to, because you fall down so harshly, yeah. all your pieces are scattered and you're almost forced to stop or slow down and to look within, which is something we rarely do because we're always rushing, mm. we're always in a hurry and in the company of other people. Mm. So there's a self that we take for granted. When you go through a depression of any kind, you can't take the self for granted anymore. So you have to sit down on the carpet and look at those broken pieces of the self and then try to reassemble. Mm. But the good thing is there's a chance the new structure could be better than the previous one. But you have to think about you it. You have to reassemble. So mm. You have to reassemble yourself. So what I found in me was um, the, the intellectual side, the bookish side of myself was always for me at the top of the hierarchy. And anyone else, any other voice that I had in me, including a much more domestic side, someone who was interested in learning how to make strawberry jams, for instance, I belittled that part of me because it wasn't important enough. So with the depression, because everything comes to the I'm surface. I'm surprised to hear that because your writing is full of cooking. Cooking, yes, but I, don't, I didn't cook necessarily. Oh, or, or maybe I didn't. Or I, I love learning about cooking, the theory of cooking, mm. and I'm very curious. Mm. Um, but there was a part of me that didn't maybe respect mm -hmm. that domestic life as much as the life of books. So throughout the book, I write about this. At the beginning, there's a monarchy without democracy. And then there's a total anarchy. <laughs> uh, and at the end of the book, hopefully, inner, inner, inner democracy, you know, yeah. That is a wonderful uh, way just for me to... Um, mark the sort of midway point in this podcast by asking you a question which I ask all my guests which mm. is if you had to be stuck in a lift in an elevator with one person who would you choose and why? 
Can I choose more than one person, or does it have to mm, be? You're kind of breaking the rules, but um, <laughs> is it a multitude or? A... Yeah, I was thinking one past one present. I mean, okay, only because um, of this week's news, I would love to be stuck in the elevator with Angela Merkel ah. and talk to her. But in the long run, I would love to be stuck in an elevator with Virginia Woolf mm. and talk to her about Orlando in particular. Would you have them in the elevator at the same time? Do that you, would do be you, grand. Do you think they get on? I think that would be great, the two <laughs> of them. <laughs> and uh, just uh, t- uh, tell me a little bit more about what you'd want to talk to Angela Merkel about. Well, indeed, about to both of them about. I... I find her very intriguing, and I think as a as a character, as a fiction, you know, for a novelist, I think she would be a tremendous fictional character. She's full of ambiguity, well. isn't she? She's full of ambiguity, mm. and there are so many layers to her. And of course, the very fact that as a woman, mm. uh, she does what she does. This this is something I respect tremendously. Then there are lots of other things about her policies that I question. Um, but the, where we are right now in the world, unfortunately, because we are pulled into completely different directions, she became one of the leading forces mm. of a much more internationalist um, wave, if you will. Mm. And in that regard, her job is not easy. So there's so many things I would love to talk to her about. And Virginia Woolf? Virginia Woolf is, um, Orlando is, is you know, a book that I've always uh, admired and I read it in both Turkish and English at an early age. I remember it mm. struck me so much because the way I see it, it's a book of freedom, endless possibilities. Unfortunately, in the literary world, especially if you happen to be a woman writer coming from the non-Western parts of the world, you're always reduced to an identity politics. Mm. If you happen to be a women writer from a Muslim background, you're expected to write the stories of Muslim women. You know, we don't expect an Afghan woman writer to write, sci- you know, science fiction or avant-garde mm. literary, experimental literary work. So there's always a desire. We, we attribute a function to fiction, especially for non-Western authors. And for me, Orlando is a book that very much challenges that because the character changes gender, time becomes irrelevant, you know, 300 years, you can go back and forth. Geography becomes irrelevant. It's a book that very much blurs boundaries of all kinds. Mm. And I think that's what fiction should do in in its core. Elif, before we get on to some sort of heavy-duty discussion about the state of the world and politics and so on, what kind of music do you listen to? I Actually, I listen to very angry music, I How think. How can a non-angry person <laughs> enjoy angry music? I was, I was always like this um, since my, my early youth. Maybe part of the reason is because I lived in Istanbul for such a long time and I, I lived in a part of Istanbul that was incredibly noisy, even more so at night time than during the day. And I would always keep the windows open, you know, people shouting, swearing on right. the streets. I love that. And I don't feel very comfortable when there's too much silence around me and everything is prim and proper and orderly. It, I, I panic. So I, I operate better amidst chaos. So what is your favourite angry music? Um... I listen to um, some Scandinavian bands that not many right. people around uh, me at they're least... They're generally not very cheerful, are they? They're not <laughs> very cheerful, and, and this is very gothic metal or black metal, industrial metal, symphonic metal, wow. some of them Viking metal, really angry, like war music. This is music. the first time the phrase Viking metal has made an appearance on this podcast, <laughs> and it's just fantastic. Um, you said earlier, uh, and I agree, that 
populists seem to be so much better at telling stories which engage emotions than yeah. than, than others. Um, so why is that? Why do they seem so much? What is the story that they're telling that seems to sort of sweep sweep all before it in a way that the politics of reason or balance or moderation mm-hmm. or compromise can't? Mm-hmm. Well, what is it? What recipe do they have that others yeah. don't? We will both remember how in early 2000s there was a time of incredible optimism, mm. right? All these predictions mm. that thanks to the um, movement of capital, people, ideas, we we're all going to become interconnected. Nation states were going to disappear. Nationalism would become redundant. Religion would lose its power, etc. And those predictions were not realized to, to some extent, maybe, but the opposite is stronger. So in the age we're living in, I think nationalism has made a comeback. Tribalism did so. Isolationism did so. And much of that is triggered by inequality. So we need to talk about inequality very seriously, particularly economic inequality, but also our worries, uh, maybe cognitive inequalities as well, cognitive gaps in different parts of the world. We need to be more aware of those gaps. Now, fast forward today, I'm worried that the pendulum has swung to the opposite pole and now we are much more pessimistic and, and there's a lot of anxiety, increasing anxiety. And every poll, every survey including in Europe, including in this country, shows that younger people are quite worried about the future. So at such an age, we need to talk about emotions in a completely different way. We need to take emotions seriously, which I don't think we are doing enough. Mm. And you you, you obviously hail from a country which is um, going through an extraordinarily turbulent time and this rather rapid drift now towards... Mm-hmm. authoritarianism, strong arm, strong man, rather, uh, politics under Erdogan. I've heard you say before that th- that can happen anywhere. Mm-hmm. Could it happen here? Could it happen in the United Kingdom? Could it even happen in the bastions of, you know, Western democratic traditions? I think Turkey holds very important lessons for Democrats, progressive-minded people everywhere, because uh, it also shows us that how fast, gradually, but also with a bewildering speed, countries can go backwards we tend to think that if a country has relatively regular and fair elections, that's enough to call it a democracy. Not at all. We need to talk about majoritarianism. And I think it's incredibly important because the same pattern can be seen as a seed in India in a much more blatant way in Hungary, Poland, country after country. I see those similarities. So what we had in Turkey was we had regular elections. But if you do not have rule of law, separation of powers, definitely free, diverse media, the media was the first thing we lost. Mm. That's why I have so much respect for the profession of journalism. You know, when we lose the media, Mm. the collapse is very, very fast. So you need a free media, diverse, but also an independent academia, definitely women's rights, definitely minority rights and LGBT rights. Together with all those components, we have a breathing, living democracy. But if you don't have any of the components or all those components are bruised and damaged over the years, but you end up with elections, what you will have is only majoritarianism. And from majoritarianism to authoritarianism, it's a very, very short When you say slide. majoritarianism, you mean the assertion that as long as you can muster a majority at a, or more yeah. votes than your yeah. opponents at any, pers- any particular point, yeah. you can kind of do what you like. Exactly. And that's isn't, what, isn't that yeah. exactly what... Referenda are precisely designed 
to do. We see it in this country here, a narrowly fought. Yeah. I haven't even mentioned the word Brexit so far. That's a first for me <laughs> to be able to go so far on a podcast without mentioning the great B word. But you know, it's a great example, isn't it? Uh, very narrow majority, yeah. and yet it's now being prosecuted yeah. according to quite a narrow, yeah. I suppose, majoritarian um, yeah. Uh, or on a sort of narrow majoritarian mandate, is that? Yes, and I think that should be that should be a concern, whether it's pro Brexit or against Brexit, but very narrow majority making this huge difference and determining shaping the future of a country for many, many, many decades to come. I don't think that should be the approach. We do not focus enough on coexistence, mm. shared values. We might come from different political affiliations, vote differently, but what are the shared values that we need to nurture? And for me, those are democracy, definitely separation of powers, definitely mm. rule of law, you know, all these things that we but can Can, I, can I push you again? Of course I agree with that, but yeah. I, just, I still have this question. So um, both my head and my heart completely agrees with you, and yet... You and I both know that yeah. that song, that story doesn't or doesn't appear at the moment to be nearly as resonant as the story of fear of them and us, of polarisation, of building walls rather than building bridges yeah. and so on. Can you think of any figure or politician who you think is is adept at telling a story which has the same emotional punch, but if if from a more... Um, plural and diverse and compassionate standpoint? There are politicians, maybe mostly at local level rather than national level across Europe and elsewhere. But if you ask me what makes me maybe more hopeful, because I'm half pessimistic, half optimistic. I like Gramsci's approach when he talks about the pessimism of the mind, mm. of the intellect and the optimism of the heart, optimism of the will. And when we look at the politics and politicians, unfortunately, who are leading the way today across the globe, I think we should be quite pessimistic. There are very alarming signs but on the other hand, when you focus on the people, like the Me Too movement, women's marches, uh, more and more minority groups organizing, you know, getting together, but also youth, students, this is an age in which more people feel passionate about politics. I remember when I moved to the UK first, I used to think the, Brit the British people are very calm when they talk about politics. They never get angry. They never show their emotions. I that, that's changed. <laughs> I think that has changed. Hugely. And it changed before and during and after the referendum. Yeah. So in some ways this can be good, in some ways it mm. can be bad. It certainly politicised the whole generation. Yeah. You, just on the referendum, of course, as you will remember, um, better than most I should think, uh, a great deal was made by Boris Johnson, Michael Gove yeah. and others about the threat of Turkey. tens of billions of Turks yeah. flooding into this country if we didn't leave the European Union. How did that make you feel? Yeah. Yeah, it made me feel very sad also because this is a rhetoric that I recognize, this kind of nationalism, this kind of tribalism. I have had friends who have, with all good intentions, have told me here in, 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 in a developed Western you know, country, nationalism will never become as dangerous as in other parts of the world. With all due respect, I disagree. It just takes one financial crisis, one big emotional crisis, and then things do become ugly very fast. And I remember seeing this huge sign saying the Turks are coming, all 80 million of them joining the EU. 
uh, it's time for us to to leave. And the people who put that sign up there, they knew Turkey was not going to. Yeah. They knew Turkey mm. was not going to join anytime soon. Mm. That was a lie. Even if Turkey joins the EU, let's say in 50 years' time, these things can be regulated. The movement of people, these issues can be regulated. But what mattered for them was to create this short-term fear, short-term emotional, almost knee-jerk response, and that's what they got. Well, fear is such a powerful... It is powerful. ...such a powerful emotion. Uh, Just sticking a moment with um, events in Turkey, there's this Mm. very important election, which yeah. at least on the day we're talking to each other uh, right now is going to happen in a week or so. Um, what is it, I mean, to, um, to those who don't know the politics of Turkey, uh, yeah. what is at stake uh, in this election? It's a, both a parliamentary and a presidential yeah. election. Well, so much is at stake and uh, I, I hope you'll agree with me. I think Turkey is a tremendously important mm. country given its uh, geopolitical, you know, the location, its, its history, it's pivotal. And it's a very complex country as well, quite multi-layered. So the the sad tragedy, the irony uh, of many countries like Turkey is that in such places, the people can be far ahead of their governments, and yet they don't have the power to change those governments. So we should not make the mistake, in my opinion, to think that Erdogan equals Turkey, not at all, or the AKP equals Turkey, not at all. We do have a vibrant, very complex civil society in Turkey, but it's also quite bruised. And many people, many Democrats have been incredibly depressed over the years as we lost rule of law. And more and more, this uh, authoritarianism has become, you know, dominant and oppressive. On the other hand, I have Which doubts. has been closely associated or entirely associated with yeah. Erdogan himself. Of course. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. It was a long journey for them. They've been in power for more than 14 mm. years, AKP. At the beginning, just like in Hungary with Viktor Orban, they came to power with big promises. It was a pro-EU party. The language, the rhetoric was completely different. They were talking about making uh, a new constitution, a much more pluralistic you know, democratic mm. constitution, and all of that uh, has Orban been used abandoned. used to be a long-haired yeah. sort of liberal, yeah. Yeah, but it became more and more um, inward-looking, mm-hmm. more and more authoritarian. There were some turning points along the way, but one of the turning points, in my opinion, was the collapse of the relations with EU. Mm. And do you so, think the EU is culpable <clears throat> in that? I primarily criticize the Turkish government for failing to fulfill EU criteria, not because EU demanded it, but we needed that criteria to be fulfilled Mm. for our own democracy anyway. But I also criticize populist politicians in Europe, particularly continental Europe at the time, who have used Turkey as a fear card in their own short-term elections. And what they didn't see in the long run is when they pushed Turkey away from Europe, the only people who were incredibly happy and who benefited from this were the isolationists mm. in Turkey. Mm. And who are they? The ultranationalists, mm. those people who want more authoritarianism and the religious fundamentalists. They never wanted Turkey to be close to Europe anyhow. I and think that's the, Putin's pretty happy as oh, well. Putin yeah. is quite happy as well. But that's the problem with isolationism. You know, if we push countries, we should be very critical of their governments, but remain connected to the people. And I don't think many European politicians are making that distinction. Hmm. I mean, listening to, to you speak and, and having read what you've written, I mean, one of the things that strikes me in this, so I'm 51 and I think my generation was 
you referred earlier to that sort of unbridled sense of optimism in the early 2000s, but I remember after the collapse of the Berlin Wall, I mean, there was this sort of bubbly atmosphere. Everything was possible and yeah. Europe was a whole and reborn continent all over yeah. again. And, oh, it's just amazing to think back to that sort of yeah. perhaps naive optimism. But at that time, and until very re- recently, I think people, I dare I say, of our sort of generation, always kind of assume that however much, however uneven progress is, tomorrow's generally better than today and today yeah. generally better than yesterday. <laughs> You make the point, which is quite a chilling one, which is that you know progress can go into reverse. History isn't a isn't yeah. an upward path towards progress. Is that is that something you yeah. you feel? Indeed, that is something I feel, and um, I think what we had in terms of our perception of history, as you pointed out, we tended to think it was based on progress. Uh, even though this view of history has been questioned extensively by many philosophers, thinkers, activists throughout the decades, especially by people from Frankfurt School, you know, people who have witnessed the horrors of rising Nazism, nationalism in Germany. This is this was their number one concern. You know, mm. does history primarily mean progress? So we had this misperception of history, but also misperception of geography, if I may say, because I think we divided the world into two parts, solid lands versus liquid lands. And by solid lands, we primarily meant the Western world, which is more safe and stable. And so the perception was, if you happen to be a Western citizen, you do not really have to fight for democracy because we are so beyond that stage, that historical stage. And therefore, women's rights, minority rights, human rights, freedom of speech, these are struggles that are much more important for people living in those turbulent lands, in those liquid lands. I personally had so many times, again, with all good intentions, I met scholars, journalists saying to me, it's very understandable that you're a feminist because you're Turkish, you know, you live in Turkey, as if it's only in those parts of the world where we need feminism. What has changed after 2016 is this perception of geography. I think we now know that there's no solid lands versus liquid lands. And maybe as the late Zygmunt Bauman told us, in fact, we're all living in liquid times. Mm. Yeah. And that means anything can change anywhere if we do not pay enough attention. It means that democracy is a very delicate ecosystem. Mm. It's not necessarily a stage you take for granted and then you move Mm. on. But the good thing about this, it's quite alarming in many other ways, but the good thing is I think more and more people are becoming activists in a nonpartisan way about and for those shared values because they know that they can lose those values. Mm. And there can be a momentum in that that core. Can I perhaps finally just bring about a sort of collision between what you talked about here, uh, being living in a liquid time, you celebrate complexity, nuance, ambiguity in your in your writing, as all great writers do, and yet politics, particularly in liquid times, is often about you know politicians having either do one thing or the other, and people demanding an absolute answer now to the potholes at the end of their drive through to you know the schooling of their children and so on i think and i certainly i found this it, it, nuance doesn't survive very well in mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. unforgiving glare of of politics these days so you mm. do you feel that the the nuance which is essential to creativity can mm. that be transplanted transplanted mm-hmm. to the much more brutal nasty and short mm-hmm. a world of of, of politicians mm. or I, are they basically just two galaxies which are just two galaxies apart mm. i think this is such such a vital question and it's one that i ask myself because 
you're very right. They have completely different energies. The the energy that I see in creative writing versus the one in politics. Politics, unfortunately, very much is relies on this distinction between us versus them mm. and the secret assumption that us is better than them, mm. right? Well, hardly secret. Yes. Well, not secret. <laughs> very obvious. <laughs> but uh, for a writer, there's no them. Yeah, it's that's very clear. So if I may approach it in a different way, I observed my, over the years, especially when I lived in Turkey full time, I I always talk to people. I always listen. I think writers need to be good listeners. And I have readers from very diverse backgrounds. Many of my readers, of course, among them, there are liberals, feminists, you know, secularists, and people of all ethnic backgrounds. But among them, there are religious people, there are conservatives, there are women with headscarves as well. And many of my readers are xenophobic. They wouldn't necessarily describe them describe themselves as such. But if you ask your opinions about minorities, they would come up with all kinds mm. of negative things. But then the same people would come and they would say, you know, I read your book and the character that I loved the most was this one. And maybe that character is Jewish or Armenian or Greek or Kurdish. I have equally lots and lots of homophobic readers. This is the way they have been raised in their households. But then they come and they say, why did you make this character suffer? Mm. And maybe that character is transsexual or bisexual or gay. I thought about this a lot. How is it possible that people who in the public space are more inclined to act with a collective energy, When they are alone, when they become individuals, they become relatively more ready to connect with the other. Mm. So there's there's a political transformative power in storytelling that I take it that I take seriously. You know, I think fascism needs collective synchronized energy, like thousands of people chanting at the same time and mm. the erosion of individuality. What art does is disrupt that. It is it to disrupt that, that yeah. and say, you know what, you don't belong in a tribe. You're an individual. I'm an individual and we connect. So that to me is um, is incredibly important. If. Anyone needed any demonstration of why politics <laughs> and current affairs needs more art in it rather than but you, less? You just made that. No, no, I, but I, you I, made a very important yeah. point about that when people get into. We do it when we go watch. A, well, I do it when I go watch a football game. You just yeah. let you let the sort of you let the collective swell of partisanship yeah. sort of take take over. Yeah. But uh, the question for politicians is yeah. who are sympathetic yeah. to what you have to say is how can you organise mm-hmm. large numbers of people mm-hmm. in a mature democracy, which mm-hmm. by definition requires a certain degree of mm-hmm. them and us and a certain degree of tribalism mm-hmm. and a certain degree of we're going in this direction, the other lot going in the other direction. Yeah. How can you do that while still also retaining the respect for nuance, difference, yeah, exactly. diversity and subtlety? Yeah, I think we need to be very clear about our core values and we need to be very um, open, you know, defend them, but at the same time be aware of the nuances and this can be done. I'll give you an example. In my opinion, it was a mistake when Hillary Clinton in the re- in the run to the elections, when she called half of Trump's voters a basket of deplorables. We should be very critical of people like Trump and mm. all populist demagogues, but not everyone who votes for Trump Absolutely. and not necessarily, and certainly not half of Trump's voters are people who are xenophobes or this and that. Likewise, I might be critical of Brexit, mm. but by no means I can say everyone who voted for Brexit 
Brexit is, you know, this kind of a person Absolutely. or that kind of a and person. Lots of very decent people voted for Brexit. The, exactly. this, these are huge, huge mistakes. And the only way we can break that is by remembering um, I should... There's another language. Another language is possible outside this tribalistic labels that we put on people. Not to forget that each and every human being has a story, has their own emotional world. If I can do that, if I can connect at that level, I think then then we can do um, politically. There's there's an amazing power there, and I I've I read. People who have survived Holocaust, people who have survived genocides, tremendous tragedies across history. And they all say, most of them say the same thing. They say the opposite of kindness or goodness is not necessarily evil. It's numbness. Mm. It's indifference. The moment we become indifferent to the Mm. other and start to see them as a tribe, as a generalized concept, then we start to lose our humanity. And when you do that... You can do anything to those people. So it's not a coincidence that in America today, with all the racism going in all parts of the world and sexism, the other, be it refugees or someone with a different race or sex, is always likened to animals. Dehumanize, yeah. Dehumanize them. And what art does, in Mm. my opinion, is to rehumanize by telling the stories. Well, uh, uh, it was fascinating to hear what you had to say and, and all the best of luck in continuing to um, humanise uh, through through art and to provide that language of subtlety and, and uh, diversity and compassion that is so desperately needed in an age of anger. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks for listening. The next show is in two weeks' time. If you enjoyed the show, then please do subscribe via Apple Podcasts. Just search for Anger Management with Nick Clegg. And if you'd like to give us a star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, that would be even more than welcome. We're also on Spotify, Acast, Stitcher and all major podcast providers. If you're an Apple denier, you can download it at audioboom.com forward slash channel forward slash Nick Clegg. And please do follow me on Twitter at Nick underscore Clegg and let us know what you thought of this episode and indeed anyone else you think uh, I should have on the podcast. But finally, let me extend once again an invitation to someone who seems to have taken very extreme measures to avoid coming on this interview, Paul uh, Dacre, the now uh, uh, outgoing and not much lamented uh, editor of the Daily Mail, who is apparently going to move on. But he's got so much time on his hands, so in addition to all that hate and all that money, he's also got time to come on my show, and I very much hope, notwithstanding his semi-retirement, he'll come and join me soon enough. Audio production is by Sophie Black and the producer is Andrew Harrison. Anger Management with Nick Clegg is a Podmasters production.